Welcome, Pudding People, to another episode of Everybody Loves Pudding. I'm your host, Ken Seymour. I have an exciting guest with us today. He is a director, a writer, uh, a man about town. We have the amazing Patrick Perez Vidali. Thank you for joining us. Uh, hi, Ken. Nice to be here. I am super excited. Now, my first question I have to ask is, how did I do? You've got that radio experience. Did, did I get a good radio intro voice there? You have an excellent radio voice. I wish I had a mic, a good, a good radio mic in front of me so I could, I could practice my radio voice. You're hilarious. Uh, somebody told me recently I have a voice for radio, and I was like, well, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be on the radio. Well, that was something that really, that really piqued my interest uh, just from – just from my my background, I grew up listening to not radio for the music, but I always liked to listen to the actual shows on the radio. So, so the, to the morning uh, jockeys, you know, not not the not necessarily the the we're bringing you today, the, you know, that sort of thing. But you know, the people that would try and actually put on a production was always something that was interesting to me. Like uh, in the Indiana area, the Bob and Tom show was kind of the thing that would spread out. So you actually were not only a writer, but uh, 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 one of the hosts of one of those types of shows before. What was that like? Well, it was it was a ball of fun. I mean, it was, um, you know, a, a comedy show. So we did political satire. We did skits and bits, uh, impersonated voices, sound effects. We do pre-recorded skits, uh, interviews, um, you know, mock. It was all like mock interviews so it was really a lot of fun um the people i was collaborating with are just um zany and fearless and uh out there and you know it's like this was we were doing you know political satire on the radio uh around the same time as the john stewart you know original uh, daily show and um there wasn't a lot of stuff like that so we had a lot of fans when you're when you're putting together something like that, um, you're talking about you know preparing some of the stuff in advance. I've always been, I've always been curious about how much is really prepped ahead of time and how much you just kind of do on the fly. What's kind of the mix on that? Are you, you do you try and make sure that everything is there, or are you just, just like okay, I'm, we're just going to go with it. This is generally what we're trying. Go. Uh. We did a combination of both. And I think as time went on, the amount of time it takes to pre-record and prepare and edit a radio piece, as you well know, it's a lot of time. And if you're if you're doing a, a show a week, which we were doing every Friday, um, it, it really infringes on a lot of other parts of your life, you know, and uh, and, you know, it's kind of non-paid work at that point. And so you kind of say, hmm, cost benefit analysis. So we did a lot of improv and good, a good, a good thing was that we had a lot of good improvisers on our, on our crew. So sometimes we do a live call in, like I, I told you, we did fake radio interviews, right. but we would do that live sometimes. <laughs> it's just like, and our producer would have his finger on the beat button. <laughs> He's like, uh oh, here they go. I was going to say that, that sounds like something that could be a recipe for, for going badly very, very quickly. I think there was, there was always the danger of it going South. And I think that's why people tuned in to listen. Cause just to see, if we just went over the edge. You know. Now this is this isn't the only thing that uh, that that I I saw in your history that was just kind of an interesting aspect that maybe could have influenced some of how you do things today. When I saw that you had a degree in anthropology, that really that was really something that was interesting, especially considering the focus that that you had. So how do you go from anthropology to directing? You know, I don't think it's that large a leap. And you probably have a, an idea of what I mean there. Yes. Uh, that, um, you know, the study of humankind and human culture and, you know, why people do what they do is very similar to the analysis of character and, the and, and you know, also, also understanding, uh, you know, how... Uh, groups do what they do and why they do what they do you know it helps us it helps me i think get to the bottom of when i speak with actors 
you know, what the character motivations are, uh, how they fit in with the other characters. And, and, and the story of how I went from anthropology to film directing is really um, a matter of how anthropology got in there is because I always wanted to do film. And I had some advice in my early years um, that college undergrad, at least, is a time for exploration and don't specialize. If, if I'm going to do film for the rest of my life, what do I want to spend four years at Columbia University where Franz Boas taught, Margaret Mead taught, you know, <laughs> the best anthropology school in the nation and you know, my while I was doing papers on comparative religion and and comparative cultures and 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 the poetry of of ancient Mexico, my friends were doing papers on uh, you know films of the '70s who were in the film program. You know, that was their homework was watching Scorsese, you know, and do, and or watching Coppola, which is nice if you really just want to coast through school. Yeah. But I was there. I was there to learn. You know, I was there to expand my mind. And learn new concepts, and I just took full advantage of that. Well, that seems like something that could be just, um, just like a factory for ideas in and of itself. I mean, the the sheer number of things that that we don't get exposed to in our normal education that were just historically significant or just very interesting of the surrounding cultures of of North America and South America is 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 kind of staggering um when you were doing your studies i know there are a lot of things that are regularly misrepresented uh, about the history of those societies were, was there something that you learned or something that uh you uh just kind of resonated it was like i i kind of already knew this but uh i didn't realize it was to this extent or i i never knew this thing is completely different from how i always thought it was i mean I, there's so many uh, Ken, so many different things that that came up in my studies. Um, you know, uh, I'll, I'll say two of them. Uh, you know, first I'll say that the briefer one is, you know, when I was studying, I was studying the cultures of ancient uh, uh, Mesoamerica, and uh, it came. You know, and, and it, you don't realize, you know, as as the North American continent was was settled. Uh, later than Europe, Europe and Asia, right? The out of Africa thing. Uh, the continent was settled about, you know, 20,000 years after the rest of the continents were settled. And so really the other continents kind of had a little bit of a, a head start, you might say, on civilization. And so when the Spaniards came to the New World, they found a very advanced society with running water, uh, very clean, very well organized, uh, huge monumental structures. Um, you know, it was larger than any city in Spain at the time, uh, Tenochtitlan, which is the capital uh, now Mexico City. And um, but what was interesting, there was still Stone Age culture in the sense that all their carvings were done with stone on stone. Those pyramids they built were stone on stone. You know, it wasn't metal tools. So it was really advanced and like the Aztec calendar, the detail is all done with a stone on another stone. And so you would think like, why didn't they learn to metallurgy? Why didn't they learn how to, you know, for the Bronze Age? So guess what? I was doing my research in Western Mexico. They under unearthed bronze bells and bronze knives. They were just about to start the Bronze Age, oh. just about like they were, like if, if they had been left alone for another couple hundred years, the, the metal technology would have revolutionized warfare and done everything that happened in the old world, you know, and but, you know, that was all stopped short with the conquest. So that was one thing that came up that was fascinating that I didn't realize that, you know, everyone knows they did great gold and silver metallurgy. Right. But as far as weapons, you know, and war, it, metal wasn't used, but it was about to be. Yeah, that's one. And I got another one that would probably take me longer to say. Maybe I should skip that. <laughs> well, there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so, okay, you said that you had an interest in film early on. What do you think it – was there a specific movie or a specific show, specific theater presentation that had that moment where you go, oh, this is it. This is what I want to do. 
I think it's more of a, a accumulation of moments. Um, I'll tell you the funniest, the, the, the first powerful experience I had in film was going with my family as a young boy to see Greece, John Travolta in Greece, <laughs> like just blew my mind. Uh, you know, just uh, the production, the, the feelings that I got, you know, sitting there in the dark theater as a young boy of, you know, identifying with his love and his pain and his heartbreak and, and, you know, it, it was just like I was on that roller coaster 100%, you know, and I left that theater. I felt like a little bit, you know, I remember I got my jacket and threw it over my shoulder and was walking with the strut, you know, <laughs> like I felt, I, I felt the revoltiness. <laughs> you know? But, um, you know, uh, and then, um, you know, in grade school, I just was gravitated to the school plays. Like I, I auditioned for everything. And um, I, I got the lead parts in almost every play. And it, one year I was emceeing the talent show and another person in my grade school was um, now known as Fergie, uh, the singer. Right? Really? Yeah. So we went to grade school together and uh, she was named, known as Stacy Ferguson back then. And uh, her she was on a show called Kids Incorporated. And uh, her manager was sitting next to my mom. And she, that manager told my mom, like, that that kid's got it. <laughs> you know, like that, that whole thing. He should be in pictures, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went to acting, you know, classes and stuff like that. But I always knew that I wanted to be kind of more in charge. I like, you know, I like, you know, running the thing, not taking orders so much. So I knew that eventually I wanted to direct. But I just love the medium. I love uh, stage, uh, theater, film, Um and, you know, just the ability to reach that person in the dark room and 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 have a little transformative experience in, in their heart, you know. Oh, when the lighting is just right and you're on stage <laughs> and you can see the reaction, that's almost like a narcotic to a lot of uh, a lot of actors. It's a uh, it's kind of a heady experience. But are you telling me that you don't want to be the guy that gives a five or ten minute monologue? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in front of the in front of the group of people you'd, you'd rather say go get them <laughs> i've had my turn doing that and uh you know as fun as it was i just feel like you know as an actor you're limited to always be saying the word somebody else wrote and uh, unless you're an improviser uh but in, the, in my position i could write the words you know yeah and uh that's that's a more exciting proposition for me well, you don't just get to to write the words; you get to to write them with with your wife. And I I find that dynamic very intriguing because a lot of times when you when you talk to people, it's it's very different worlds. You have your home life, you have your work life, and in an environment where there's so much going on, I I find the idea of of cohabitating with the the person that you share the strongest emotional ties to very very interesting what is it like to be able to share this kind of creative process with with the person that you love i mean it is as you can imagine the best and the worst yeah <laughs> like there's there's both sides of it um you know i've always you know i always wanted to, to have a partner uh, you know before i got married uh that was a capable strong independent woman who had her own thing going on. And when I met Christina, um, she had written a one woman play. She actually came on my radio show to promote it. And that's where we met, you know, and um, we actually had known each other through mutual friends before. And so we just reconnected there. And, you know, I found here's a beautiful woman who who's uh, passionate for pursuing her dreams. But at that point she wanted to be an actor and I was directing. So I um, actually directed her in a few things and that went well. And then for my senior thesis, I think we might've talked, uh, you might've talked about this with her, but for my senior thesis, um, I found a script one day that she had written and I was like, wow, this is really good. Uh, it was it was called Stockholm and it was about the Stockholm syndrome. And uh, I said, do you mind if I do this for my senior thesis? And she said, no, you know, and she always wanted to learn to produce. So I said, look, I'll show you how to produce. You know, I'll direct your script and, and I'll, you know, I'll teach you the ropes on producing. And so she came on to my senior thesis and 
you know, we did well. There was a one point I remember when we got in a personal argument about something and I told her, look, this, my relationship with you is more important than, than this film. So if you want to drop, stop working together, that's fine. I just want to make sure that our relationship isn't damaged by, by the film. And I think that's kind of, once we resolved that, that got resolved and we finished the film and then we got married. <laughs> so uh, I think that that's kind of the dynamic that the relationship always comes first. Um, and I, I do, you know, the things we're able to accomplish living together are like, they are exponential. Like, you know, it, 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 it sucks in the fact that we're always on and, you know, we're in bed talking business and that sucks. But um, uh, but the, the amount we're able to accomplish is exponential compared to other teams, I think, um, because we are always on. So, we, you know, you know how Elon Musk sleeps at his company. I sleep <laughs> at my company. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, he may need to be careful about that. There may be some people that will be setting up some some unwanted pranks. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, so. So I, I feel like there is, in in a way, an element of what you just described to a certain extent in a lot of the relationships you develop in the industry, right? You get you get directors that work with actors and go, okay, I know what you can do, and I I like I like that, and I know I can I can I can work with you. Do you feel like that that is something that that happens in in your uh, in your experience so far, have you run into people like, okay, this this casting director, this is this person I can trust. That these, yes. absolutely. Like, uh, for instance, my costumer has been my wardrobe person since my first short film in 1999. <laughs> wow! Know? So she has uh, she was there at the beginning. She she studied at the Fashion Institute of Design and went on to work for Guess. And but she's a good friend of mine and. Uh, you know, the godmother of my children and um, and uh, and has followed me through through my career, although it's not a career for her because she only does my films. You know, it's not like she does wardrobe for everybody. So but on the acting side, there's a character, uh, there's an actor by the name of Joseph Nunez, who studied with Second City and he's been, he was in Superbad and uh, Domino from Tony Scott, a bunch of films very very funny guy and a, and a personal friend of mine who has been in like four out of my five films so i put him in everything because he's that funny guy he's just hilarious and i can count on him for improvisation you know and uh uh so i've found a role for him in in almost every film and uh, thank god he's he's agreed to do it but it's not only that like so my the lead actor of divorce bait vanessa vasquez is also the lead actor in our next film, which is called The Answer to My Prayer, which we just shot in Texas, and that'll be something we're editing right now. She looks like she's going to be uh, in, in a certain amount of popular demand going forward. I I know I was talking earlier to seeing her in the National Treasure uh, television yes. show, and uh, she does a fantastic, jo fantastic job in everything I've seen her in so far. She's beautiful. She's talented. She's hardworking. She's reliable. You know, she has everything it takes to, to break out. And it's really like Christina and I, uh, our mission to create new stars as part of our, our, our what we want to do is create new stars, especially Latino stars, uh, because like the Selma Hayek's and Jennifer Lopez's of the world are aging out. And who's our next crop of young? I mean, Wednesday Adams, you got the, you know, she's going to be a huge star. Oh, yeah. But uh, we believe in Vanessa and, uh, you know, we, we want to we want to make sure that that she has a long future in, in, in this industry. Well, and also talking about, you know, kind of the, the mission statements, the trying to, trying to have a, a, a more amplified Latino American storytelling. How do you approach creating, creating content that will both appeal to a very specific demographic like that, but also appeal 
to a larger audience so that you can hit the mark so that you can go, look, look I, I, I know what, what it is that's important to you and I want you to see that, but we also want to make other people aware and be able to appreciate the, the richness of, of this culture. Well, I think it's specificity is really kind of the word in the sense of uh, behavior, language, phrasing. Um, like I, you could take a, a like I, I've learned a lot from the African-American filmmakers. You know, if you look at a, a movie like, you know, back in the day, like like um, House Party or, mm-hmm. or or Boys in the Hood, those movies were crossover hits. Everybody watched them. Yep. But vernacular, the behavior was authentic. It was authentic to its place and its culture. It spoke to everybody because the experiences were gen- general. You know, it was a it was a generic experience, but the but the but the style almost or the presentation of the culture coming back to anthropology was was unique and specific. You know, and I think that's what we like to do. Um, we have a film on HBO Max right now called In Other Words about the clash of two cultures. Kind of, it's like a, a American guy falls in love with a Mexican girl, and uh, and it's and they don't speak each other's language, and so um, that's you know that's one way we do the crossover is to have the point of view of the American point of view, but have the Mexican point of view as well, and then when they interact, it's not anything like other people portray Mexico as. You know what I mean? Like right. it's so commonly portrayed as a burning dust heap of narco violence, <laughs> you know? Right. And, and, and if you've ever been, it's beautiful. The people are kind. The food is great. The You know, there's plenty of blonde folks in Mexico who are hundred percent Mexican, you know? So I think that the stereotype image is something we really want to change and, uh, and influence that dialogue. And then in, in, in divorce bait, it doesn't even matter that they're Latino, that the, the, the main characters are Latino. This is a problem of a marriage. Right. You know, And I, I really want to get beyond the fact that, oh, this part was written for an American and you don't look American enough or whatever it might be. Like we're all Americans, you know, <laughs> including you know, African-Americans, Asian-Americans. Right. And that's what we have in, in divorce bait. There's Asians, African-Americans, uh, Latinos, everybody's in this film. And that's how, you know, at least in my neighborhood, that's how it the reality is like all my friends are all kinds of races and we get along just fine. So, okay. So I have a question that's more specific in terms of, in terms of um, origins of, of film. I mean, films have been made all over the world and for a very long time. And in certain regions, there's certain shorthand that you get. So like in American cinema, you know, people know about the, the meat cute, you know, that's, that's the thing that you'll see in a lot of rom-coms. Is there in uh, Mexican cinema, one of those pieces of shorthand that is different from what uh, the person consuming more uh, American cinema would not be used to. That's kind of interesting that you always loved. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's very specific. And um, I don't know if there's a a thing that Mexican cinema does because there's so many great directors. They're doing so many different styles. Um, You know, for me, I am an American boy. I grew up, my dad, you know, was born here. My my uncles fought in World War II. uh, And I grew up on American cinema. So my vernacular is American, you know, but as a, you know, intellectual guy who loved, I love foreign cinema. I love, you know, uh, Akira Kurosawa is my favorite director from Japan. Yeah, you know, he's awesome. And, Give me Seven and, Samurais any day. Yeah, any day. Rashomon, man. You know, so uh, the the you know, so I think that I do, and I do think that Hollywood appreciates uh, Mexican cinema more than it does Mexican American cinema. You know, and and so. To me, it, it does behoove me to kind of have kind of a, a foreign film flavor uh, to my films so that I kind of seem more like a Mexican film director, even though I'm from here, born here, second, third generation. Uh, um, you know, I do think that 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 uh, it by and large, the popular image um, uh, of America is that these there's some great foreign filmmakers 
uh, but and then the d domestic Latino filmmakers kind of get overlooked. Well, it's really kind of interest interesting looking at the, the history of film in and of itself. In the late 1800s, some of the premier early uh, silent film stuff came from Mexico. Yeah, and it's yeah. just there's 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 a lot of history there, and I I feel like it's something that I wish would be explored a little bit more than it really is. And it's just just yeah, something there's a photographer named Gabriel Figueroa, yeah. who did some amazing lighting. Some something like I mean, people say Citizen Kane was a great you know beautiful film, or or you know some of the early you know the classic golden age of Hollywood, but. Man, uh, Gabriel Figueroa, if you look at his cinematography and, and some of the movies he did, it's just outstanding. Uh, they, they had something called Figueroa Skies where you you really, you know, could see every cloud in the sky and just these really low angles that where the sky was dominant and uh, just gorgeous stuff. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Now, talk about something that's dominant, but in a, in a slightly different way. You have had an interaction with maybe one of the most dominant personalities in comedy. Um, you you were, were able to work with Will Ferrell, um, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. I, uh, it, I always have these instances. I love speaking to people, but it's like, who would I speak to but have trouble because I just mark out? And that is one of the individuals what was it like to work with him on Casa de Mi Padre? It was fantastic. Um, it was really, you know, kind of like a dream. Uh, I was sleepwalking through it in a way because <laughs> I uh, I got a call from a producer named Kevin Messick. I had translated a script for him from uh, Spanish to English. He wanted to adapt a, a comedy from Spain into to America and sell it. And he asked me to... You know, actually, you, he called UCLA Film School where I was attending and said, hey, do you got anyone down there who could translate, who's bilingual? And they recommended me. So I translated the script for Kevin. And then about four or five years later, I get another call from Kevin Messick. And he's like, this time I need you to translate a script from English to Spanish. And it's um, for Will Ferrell. And I was like, great. So I was working at the time. I quit my job. <laughs> <laughs> Done. And, you know, I had babies. My wife was pregnant. Hey, man, you got to follow. <laughs> you got to follow the opportunities when they come. You know. Yeah. We weren't sure how we were going to land on our feet, but we did it. You know, we went for it. And uh, so I translated the script with the former head writer of Saturday Night Live. And once we were done translating it, I said, "Hey, he was going to teach Will Spanish." And they said, we don't have anybody. And they said, do you know somebody? I said, yeah, me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so yeah. I, I, uh, it's like the Dick Cheney thing. I, I found myself, I, I, I recommended myself as the candidate. And um, so I went up, he said, well, go up to Will Ferrell's house and interview, uh, he'll interview you. And if it works out, then you'll get hired. So I went up to his house up in Hollywood Hills and I and he was at a guest house area and I knock on the door and I realize it's that little house. Remember that viral video of the little girl, the little landlord girl? Oh, right. It's called the landlord. And she's like, where's my rent? Right. Where's my effing rent? You know, and he's like, oh, you're so mean. Anyway, <laughs> that was his guest house. So I'm standing there in the house where that was filmed. I'm like, oh, this is the house. You know? That's and then Will, Will comes in with like a funny T-shirt, sipping a cup of coffee. And uh, and we just started talking. We ended up talking for like two hours and he's just so interesting. And, you know, he also we we started talking about like like uh, the conquest of Mexico and world history and politics. And and uh, and, uh, you know, he's like we hit it off. And so I got the job and I had to go up there like two or three times a week and, and teach him Spanish, teach him the script. And so we got close to the date of shooting and he still didn't know his lines because <laughs> he had gone to Russia to promote the other guys, which is out at the same time. Right. And he came back and forgot everything I had taught him, you know? Oh, and man. so I was like, okay, I got a plan. I was like, have your driver pick me up in the morning and on the way to set, we'll run that day's lines. And on the way home, we'll run tomorrow's lines. So that way, on the way home, we'd run it once. On the way there, we'd run it again. So he would run it twice. Wow. And that's it. Like, then he would go and do it, having having kind of learned it phonetically. 
only twice, you know, that's crazy. So, so then while we were on set, uh, they, the I director would call cut and everyone would look at me and be like, <laughs> like how, how do you do? You know, I'd be like, no bueno, you know? <laughs> and so, so they say, well, go, go adjust him. So I'd go up there and I'd, I'd talk to him and fix the scenes and stuff like that. So it was fun. I got, I kind of got to, to, uh, shadow slash, you know, ghost direct a little bit there and uh, really see what a what, a, what a, uh, a kind of a high level indie film um, looks like. And, you know, one of my surprising conclusions was that kind of the higher you go in the hierarchy, and maybe this isn't true in all cases, but in this case it was, the people are nicer, more, uh, you know, open uh, to ideas. They're just not threatened and not defensive and not uh, vindictive and stuff. They're just so loving, open, and, and uh, a great collaboration. I, I, and I think like in the way up on film, there's a lot of backstabbing and backbiting and, and, and you know smack talking and stuff like that. But I guess that they're at a level where that's all gone. All the people who do that are out. They don't want to work with them. It really comes down to in this industry and maybe man, many industries, who wants to work with you, you know? Mm-hmm. If you're if you're a jerk, no, you're you're not going to last long, you know. And so um, I've been able to maintain this relationship with Will Ferrell, and and uh, because we got along great, and I'm hoping to cast him at some point and work with him again. That would be so cool. I um, I because I always wondered with the type of films that he does and the history he's had with like SNL and that sort of stuff, I always wonder. It's like, okay, is he is he the guy that is, you know, off camera? serious and that's what i'm doing or is he like a robin williams i have to be on all the time sort of a thing that's probably my number one question i get and the truth is he's a serious guy like he there was no joking like we never we never joked around at least with me uh a little bit but just like like as you would with a buddy it's like it it was the it was very largely he's a very thoughtful um uh engaged kind of person so he's he's concerned about politics the environment he had an electric car before anybody i knew and he drove it everywhere um uh, he he's very concerned about you know the state of the world affairs and the environment and everything so he's a, he's a serious guy but you know when when he's on it's another matter like when he's on camera he's 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 out there you know <laughs> Yeah, I, I probably should never be allowed anywhere near a set because I probably would, would not be able to be quiet. It's like, oh, I'll stand over here. I'm going to be laughing too much. It's hard. Um, so, all right. C- kind of going back to a little bit what we were talking about, working working with your wife. Lola's Love Shack was the first production you did with her. I was kind of curious. Whenever you have a first real produced collaboration, not, not – uh, you know something that's that's uh, that's going to be kind of a special place. Do you have a specific memory from the production of that 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 sticks out to you that that is is kind of special and near and dear to your heart? Well, of course, it was my first film, and um, I'll tell you the way we wrote that script. It was with I wrote it with a friend of mine, a very funny guy from the radio show, named Esteban Zul, and. Uh, we used the method I learned from Kurosawa, which it, when they wrote The Hidden Fortress, there was two writing teams and one of them uh, would write the characters into a problem and leave them there, hand the script off to the other team, and they would get them out of the problem and get them into a new problem. And that's kind of like a chess match. It was like seeing if you could stump the other, you know, like get them into such a big mess. There's no way out. And then the other writer has to figure out the way out. And that's the approach we took and it really worked. So I just love that, um, you know, that writing process. And we wrote that script very fast. We wrote it in a couple of weeks, uh, just handing it back and forth and and working on it like that. So that was one thing. I really have a great memory of writing, writing the script uh, out on my patio. Like my baby was just born, my son. Uh, and I would, with my foot, I would rock his little cradle, you know, with my foot while I typed. And I had like a nice cold beer and in the summer of like whatever summer it was many years ago. Uh, and and uh, it was just a wonderful memory. That sounds pretty awesome, uh, I have to say. Uh, I, I would think that the only downside of that particular writing style is that you 
might stump everybody. I seem to remember hearing uh, Kevin Smith uh, when he was doing the Red State tour. He took that same kind of tack of trying to just put himself into a harder and harder thing until he got to the end of the film and didn't know how to end it. <laughs> it's just like, uh, well, I'm just going to end it here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, <clears throat> well, luckily we have the, uh, the, 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 the tenants of the genre, you know, like, so we're, you know, it's kind of a rom-com genre. So, you know, right. how it's going to end the guy gets the girl, you know? So as long as we ended, so if you work within the structure of the genre, it really helps, you know, guide the, the, the so we can kind of go pretty far afield as long as we come right back into the, the genre structure, you know? Do you have a rom-com that is kind of a personal favorite to you? I know I asked Christina the same thing. Do you have that same love of the, the Hughes films that she does? Is there something that is your warm and fuzzy spot? I mean, I am, I have, I think I have mainstream taste. I love when Harry met Sally, you know, I, I think that is the greatest rom-com of all time. I think it really accurately, you know, des- describes, uh, male female relations in a certain way uh, i love the mocking or the interviews of the old couples who'd been together forever and then the surprise at the end that that the, the main couple was also part of that interview process um it just was an excellent excellent uh screenplay and movie so that's my favorite uh you cannot go wrong with uh, a meg ryan rom-com to begin with especially if you've got billy crystal and it's just just classic yeah. stuff i mean um so um, in, in, when you're doing a rom-com, what is it do you think about that specific genre that resonates with audiences? Why do, why do we as a, uh, as a culture that consumes our, our, our movies always want to go back to that? Well, you know, we know that we go to movies and I, I'm starting, I see this more and more that, you know, as a filmmaker, we go to movies to, to escape our own lives a little bit, see, see stories that we haven't, that we haven't lived. And, you know, there's so many times I get pitched, you know, once you're a filmmaker, you get, everyone's like, oh, I have a story. This really happened. That's pretty much what I hear all the time. This actually happened. And the thing is, we don't want to see usually what actually happened. We want to see things greater than life, like bigger, bigger than, you know, and so I think with rom-coms, we get to have that love story. We get to have that emotional element, but we get to have that comedy, that outrageousness, you know, those situations that we would never be in, no. you know, like Meg Ryan having the orgasm in the, in the, uh, in the restaurant, like n- none of us would ever do that. And no. it's hilarious. Right. It's like these comedies, uh, go farther than we would go in our own lives. And that's what I like to do as a director is like push the envelope. Uh, divorce bait does that if you check out divorce bait um it, it, it pushes the envelope a lot uh and it goes it goes into situations that none of us would ever actually be in but you know that that's where the hilarity comes from yeah and it, oh my other favorite rom-com something about mary oh like yeah i couldn't breathe i was laughing so hard i literally <laughs> fell out of my chair <laughs> laughing at that one and those guys pushed the envelope all the way right yeah. fairly brothers. yeah yeah, you you can't look at uh, a shampoo bottle in quite the same way. <laughs> just just not there. Well, one of the things that I noticed in in films like the the one that you made, and I I feel that sometimes sometimes critics or people that uh, that consume the film uh, approach it in slightly the wrong way. I've been seeing more and more recently where where they, the commentary has been like, well, in this particular sitcom, these people are awful people. It's like, well, you have 30 minutes and you have to make a distinct impression and they have to get into a situation that no one would ever get into. So, yeah, they're going to do some pretty ridiculous things that are not great. That's the only way that it works. But that's not the point. Um, do you feel that that's kind of an accurate, an accurate portrayal or is, or is, it, is it something deeper? No, I, I think that that is a trend, um, and I've I've noticed that um, you know there's a lot there's a trend in kind of what I think kind of are unlikable characters being main characters, people who do 
horrible things and aren't very likable at all. Like it used to be like one of the first big anti-heroes was like Scarface or, mm-hmm. or you know, like it was in the 70s. They started coming out with, you know, all through the 50s and 60s, the heroes were the good guy. Then the heroes started being the bad guy, you know, and nowadays the heroes are these kind of twisted, unlikable folks sometimes. And, you know, you know, I think that it's very popular. I, I even noticed it with White Lotus. Like mm-hmm. the first season of White Lotus is like, I don't like anybody. <laughs> like, all these people are so screwed up. You know, like yeah. only like the masseuse is the nice person, you know, but everyone else is just like off their rockers, you know, and, and, and horrible people. And, um, you know, so I do think there's a trend that way. And it's a highly successful film. I heard season two is better. I'm going to give it a shot. But uh, but I do think that that is a trend uh, for my films. I, I do still like to hew to the classic uh, methods of having the hero be a likable person who's yeah. flawed, you know, a likable person with a deep, deep flaw. And, you know, in Divorce Bait, um, uh, Alexis Laguna, the main character, is deeply insecure. Uh, she has been divorced and she doesn't want to get divorced again. And she's not sure how she screwed up. But her very fear of screwing it up and her distrust of everybody is the thing that screws it up. Yeah. Right. And that's to me the perfect kind of flaw, character flaw, because every great character flaw has to be the they are the architect of their own demise. The main character is, the, is at fault for their problems, you know, right. and, and the twist comes when they realize that. You know, and so I like that that classic formula. It's really all the way back to uh, to um, Plato. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm 100 with you. One of my go to feeling awful films that I watch is High Fidelity. It's the same kind of thing. If you know the character, he's not he's made a lot of mistakes, but it's that redemption through self awareness and love that always brings us back to the to the beginning. So. You've got Justin Bertie in in the film, and he has a very a very interesting kind of history in some of the films he's been in. He's been like a villain in a lot of Hallmark Channel style films. How did we how do we get Justin Bertie into the into this particular role where he gets to be kind of blindsided by what happens? Yeah, I think he does a great job of of, of playing the blindsided husband. And I've, I've said before, it's, it's kind of the, the formula is it's similar to I love Lucy where the wife comes up with a harebrained scheme and drags everybody down the road with her, you know, and he's the long suffering husband who just like, what are you doing? You know? And so, uh, but how we got Justin was that, um, you know, this was during the pandemic. Uh, uh, it was a low budget film. Um, and, you know, so we just put an open casting call. And when I saw his acting, when, when I cast, all I care about is how good an actor they are, not whether they are a dramatic actor or a comedic actor or whether they or even how they look very much. There is a look element as well, but but the chops have to be there. And when I saw Justin's acting chops, I was like, this guy is good. He really knows how to act. He really knows how to convey. And I saw him do, like you said, villain roles. I saw him do detective roles. Um, uh, I saw him do like a husband type of role. And I was like, he did all of them excellent. And so he was my top choice. And here's a guy with so much talent, good looks, charm. I think he should be a star. You know, like I was saying about Vanessa, like if he's not a star already, I really hope that he becomes one because he deserves it. I love working with people who have pursued their passion for years and have honed their craft and have committed 120% to what their dream is. That's who I like to work with. Well, it definitely seems like you have that with this cast, just looking at the names on it and and being familiar with a lot of their work already. Uh, we've talked to Eric uh, fellows a couple of times now and he's he's always just a, a pleasure and his work is kind of his specific take he's always got a very bright take 
on the characters that he plays. So, I mean, it's just a shine. If, if, if I don't know any other way to put it, but he's just kind of, when you see this, he always pops off the screen and you know he's there no matter what he's doing. Uh, and you, And if you just had one person like that in this film, that would be exceptional, but you don't. You've got a whole slew uh, of people that all have that kind of sheen. So it, thank you. How do you, how do you, how do you balance it to get everybody that, that, that moment to shine? I mean, they, they all have that skill. I mean, we're, we casting is everything, you know, um, we, we love Eric, my wife and I, we, we, we cast him years ago in a pilot that we were trying to get off the ground. That's where we first met him. We put him in, in other words, which is currently on HBO Max. He's a tiny little cameo in there. Um, and now we have him in a big role, in a, in a starring role in Divorce Bait. And he finally got, you know, and we're the only ones who put him in comedies. Again, kind of like Justin. Like, he's really more of a dramatic actor, but he is so good in comedy. You know, if you see him in this role, he's just this, uh, I don't know. His character is a self-absorbed uh, photographer, uh, you know, who, who's kind of, uh, you know, very clueless about how he portrays in the world or like how, how he comes across. And he does that so well, you know, and his comedic his comedic timing is impeccable and, and uh, his charm, you know. Uh, so we're I mean, I, we're just lucky. I, th- what I do is I cast well and uh, I also encourage improvisation so when when we we're running a scene and if it's not quite working and they want to change a line i'm very open to changing lines adding lines and and eric improvised quite a bit you know he was able to uh take the gist of what's going on and add a little bit of his own flavor to it so it really comes across as as uh, i think fresh you know because it's more the way people actually speak rather than the written word well, and then you get that 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 real investment in the performance too, because now it's also it's it's, it's part of my my idea, and I want to make it work. Yep. Um, yep. What do you hope that the viewer is going to have as a takeaway from Divorce Bait? What do you want most for people to remember from this film? That's funny. You know, it's, this is a. This is outrageous romantic comedy and uh, rated R. If it's not rated yet, but it would be rated R. Uh, you know, I want them to lose themselves and laugh and just have a moment of of pure hilarity and escapism and laughter is the best medicine and all that stuff. But at the core of it, you know, I from the very beginning when Christina is writing, one of the benefits I have as as being her husband is that we discuss the script before it's even written. And we focused early on on the concept of trust. And this is really a film about trust. And if you take anything from the film, the message is you can't have a healthy relationship without trust. You know, and and it's very apparent in the film. And I think it's a good message for everybody. I like it. All right. So as we're wrapping up, I have to ask a couple of questions I love to ask to everybody. Um, <clears throat> across the spectrum, our our podcast tends to focus on uh, the intersection of television, films, and comics. So i I asked uh, I asked this to everybody that I've ever interviewed. Are, first of all, are you a comic book fan at all? Have you ever had that immersion in your background? I, I am not. I have to say, I was more of a, a reader. I mean, a big book reader. But uh, I did get into the X Men comics. I was a big fan of of Wolverine. It's it's hard not to like a, a a surly short man with a metallic skeleton. Um, if you had the chance to write or direct, whether it be a superhero kind of genre or a slice of life thing, uh, I know Christina mentioned she read Archie's and that kind of thing. Is there a is there a comic property that you'd love to get your hands on? You know I. Not really, but there's an interesting development in my life where my my cousin, who's a who's a lawyer, acquired the rights to the most famous comic book superhero in Mexico uh, called um, what's his name? His name is uh, it'll come to me in a second. But he's developing the property with the the producer of Batman. And uh, 
they say they're going to include me in the movie somehow. Kaliman is his name, Kaliman. So this actually, he did acquire a comic book. And uh, actually, he asked me early on for advice on how to do it. And I, I was instrumental in helping him get the rights to that to that property that's awesome so that's that's a lot of that's a lot of the fun there are so many so many different again just like the the films across the world there's, there's comics from across the world that take slightly different perspectives on on the medium and just seeing that the interpretations are, are so much so much fun um okay well let's 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 venture away from spandex and uh towards glutens uh <laughs> Uh, food brings us all together. And so I always ask, uh, are you a pizza person? And if you are, what type of a pizza person are you? Are you a New York slice? Are you a California? Uh, do you do deep dish Chicago style? Where, where do you go for your pizza? John's pizza, New York city, Greenwich village, the best pizza in America. (laughs) I, like I know it. my shop, but uh, <laughs> I went to uh, Columbia University, so I'm a New York pizza guy. And uh, last year, I got to direct a film that comes out January 31st called Townhouse Confidential. About It takes place in the West Village, and we got to shoot in John's Pizza, which is an iconic pizza establishment. Wow. Uh, and, you know, they made us fresh, uh, fresh from the oven pizzas for our scene. And uh, that was my favorite scene I've ever directed. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> well, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to speak with us. Tell us about your history and your new film, Divorce Bait, which by the time this airs will be on all sorts of streaming platforms. Uh, listener, you definitely have to give this a, a, a chance. Uh, this this film, just if, if you're a fan of a raunchy comedy, this this is going to push all the buttons. I swear, this is this is great. Definitely t- uh, take a take a chance and, and and check it out. Thank you, Ken. Yeah, everybody, it's an independent film, but it packs a punch. I, I hope you guys enjoy it. Absolutely. And, and as a final note for all of you listeners to see what Patrick is going to be up to, how do we follow you on social media? Uh, Instagram. I'm Pat Perez World. Uh, at Pat Perez World, uh, Facebook, I'm Patrick Perez Vidowry. Um, and uh, on Twitter, I'm Pocho Patrick. Uh, <laughs> but, from the radio uh, show. From the radio show, yeah. Days. <laughs> well, thank you again. And I cannot wait to talk to you when you have your, your next big movie coming out and see how, uh, see how that's going to go. I'm super excited. Thanks, Ken. Talk to you soon. 